internet brand strategist Sandra Beck interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel, to telecommuting from home, to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. everybody, this is Sandra Beck and have I got a treat for you today. We're going to be talking with Carol Sanford. Now Carol Sanford, she's a prolific author, she's got just amazing business leadership skills and her books are required reading at Harvard, Stanford and MIT and even Google thought it was time to set the record straight on what regenerative change really means for business leaders. Now, I'm going to start right there because I don't think people know what regenerative change is. Let's talk about that first. Let's get that baseline. And thank you so much for agreeing to come on my show today. Absolutely. I love the idea of this conversation. So regeneration is an ancient idea. People think it's new, but what it really means is to evolve the capacity of something to be itself more completely. Okay. So if we were to say Sandra, regenerate Sandra, and she does, you have to do that every time you get, do an interview. You have to say, what do I bring to this? Who am I? How do I keep that in mind? And how do I evolve the capacity of the people I'm working with to do that for themselves? Mm. So it's not something you do to change people. It's something you give them the capability to bring for themselves. Uh, you can do it with a life shed or with a child. I mean, I have all my kids are grown now and grandkids are half grown. But the question I'm always asking is how do I bring them back to who they are? And I've done that with corporations where we start, I'll give you a quick example. Um, seventh Generation, which is a company that around the world makes non-toxic paper products and personal care products. We went and looked at what was the essence of the founder and what brought them back to their DNA? Regenerate from your DNA, right? And it turns out that that is about transparency. We built a whole business that uh, was able to grow 35 to 65% per annum in revenue just by changing all of their strategic thinking, product development, packaging, hiring, everything to say, we stand for transparency. You will always know the effect of everything we do. We will put it on the package, even though it's not required by law. We will make sure we share with our suppliers, our customers. So virginity becomes alive when you do it that way. Well, and what's interesting to me is that's a drawing rather than a pushing. And yep. You know, you look at so many, you know, I went to Northwestern for my undergraduate and graduate work and worked for big companies like Disney and CBS and Coldwell Banker, right. you know, really big household names. And they tend to, and this is no disrespect, they're wonderful companies, but there's an ideology that they put yeah. on you. There's a belief system that right. you must buy in to share. You know, there's, there's all of these things that are laid upon the, even the creatives that right. you're part of this and this is the way we think. And 
when you talked about going back to the initial spirit of the creative owner, like the first yeah. person that had this, what was that spark? I think yeah. that spark gets lost a lot in corporations in trying to systematize and streamline right. and right. making everything, you know, they literally just took that spark and snuffed it out. You make it machine-like is what you're describing. And let me tell you how we ended up at we. As you're going to hear me say we. I was the educator for the group and the collaborator. I was not employed, although they did give me a lot of stock as a thank you. But the, uh, the key there was when you interviewed someone to be hired, you said, here is who we are. We're, we stand for transparency. How do you relate to that? And if people couldn't say something that sounded meaningful, Jeffrey or whoever was hiring would say, well, does this connect with you? Do you feel it meaning? If they said, no, we they, they weren't a good fit. Carol, I'm just going to jump in here right now because now is a really good time to thank our sponsor. And our sponsor today is Best Fiends. And I love Best Fiends and I've been playing it for years now. I'm way over level 375. Right now, I'm currently playing the Golden Wheel Race. And if I beat five new levels in the first try in the next 17 hours, I get to spin the Golden Wheel. And there's all sorts of great things that you can do with Best Fiends. And one of the things I love about them is once you download Best Fiends, you can play anywhere. Even with an internet connection, which is great because sometimes you're stuck without Wi-Fi. And you can collect tons of friends that get powered up as you play more levels, and you can even go back to the baby levels, which is super fun. And every win brings new challenges. There are thousands of puzzles to play. And you know, we talk sometimes on the show about happiness coming from within, but there are days that just suck the happiness right out of you. Anybody who, who is a single parent like me and works from home and is juggling elder care, child care, the whole thing, I need some sort of external accomplishment to help me get back into my competitive spirit. And a lot of times it's just firing off a few rounds of Best Fiends. And you can download Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play. You can earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. I want you guys to go do this because when you're frustrated, when you're stressed out, when work is just too much or you need a people break, I mean, screw the digital detail. I need a break from people. I need a break from my clients, my kids, my family, my friends. And I can go into this little fiend world after downloading Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play. And I can just have my way with these slugs. I can get rid of my frustrations. The music cheers me up. I'm such a different person before and after firing off a few rounds. I encourage you guys, check it out. Download Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level five. That's friends without the R, best fiends, friends without the R. You'll be so glad you did. Now we're talking today with Carol Sanford and we're talking about a new type of leadership and choosing people by their fit. And you've got some interesting things to talk to us about choosing people based on their fit. You made sure people were fit. And then here's the fun part you'll love, Sandra. We said, what do you want to contribute that is uniquely you to that spirit? So now we've got what I call an essence to essence match. Yeah. You as an employee and what the business is about. Whole different way of running it. And by the way, I've worked with some really big companies who for short periods of time, when you had uh, my first, the forward to my first book is written by the chairman, CEO, and president of DuPont, who for a short period of time, 
adopted this way of working. And then, of course, the minute he retired, somebody undid it all and went back to traditional way of doing business. Well, and, you know, it's interesting you talk about this because in the formation of my own company, and obviously it's a small little multimedia company, you know, it's not a big Disney giant or a big DuPont giant, Right. but I, and I teach my kids this too. It's like a marriage of values and vision. And so when I ask somebody, you know, obviously I don't go up and say, you know, hey, guess what? I'm going to ask you, Carol, what are your values and your vision? You know, it's it's not like a, a checked box thing. But if we have a conversation and I sense that your values are not in aligned with mine, if your vision is not in aligned with mine, how can we expect to create anything together? And when our values are aligned and maybe our shared values are hard work and maybe they're, you know, creativity or authenticity or thinking outside the box, like whatever those might be, if we're going to journey together. And I think this is true of relationships. I think it's true of friendships. We can't journey together if our values and our visions are not aligned. And once we align our values and our vision, then I can say to you, hey, what 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 do you like to do what can you do what are you good at what do you see yourself doing Mm -hmm. and i've had people come in and say well i see myself building your company a new website i think your brand needs this i think you're that now that's contribution to the greater good of the whole organization so i do this a little differently and i uh so what essence means is core core purpose core process and core value, but it doesn't mean mine. It means what I believe my match is for what's going on in the world in a company. So I'll go back to some generations since we started them. We say, all right, we here's the strategy for the company. Here's the direction. And for them, it turned out to be authentic voice for what sustainability means. That's a corporate direction that comes out of the essence. And then we say, what will you promise to deliver to the customer, not to the company, Mm -hmm. the customer that you don't yet know how to do, but it seems so valuable to you and fits what you're about that you wanna learn how. So we call those promises beyond ableness. And so instead of saying, who are you, what do you wanna do? We say, what difference do you want to make in the life of the customer? So we're connecting people internally to the world that the company is serving and giving them a lot of freedom to write a plan, to write their own evaluation. Uh, and everyone, no matter what their role is, it's at Google, the engineers get to do things like that. But in a regenerative company, uh, which I write about, everyone gets to make a promise beyond able to and so we had one woman who said in seventh generation, I want our, our distributor, babies or us, to be able to explain to every mom or pop who wants to buy baby products what the effect will be on the health of that baby. And she set out, to, she didn't know how to do that. Right. She learned how, she learned marketing, she learned training, education. She set up an agreement with babies or us And they became the best seller. So I want to throw this in. When people work with the processes I use, they end up growing their business 35 
to 65% per year in revenue because they now are connecting everyone who works inside to the people that they're, whose lives they're making a difference in. That's a whole different way of structuring, I think, that moves everything from inside me, my boss, me, the company, to me making a real difference in the world. Well, and now I understand what you said. You, you, you know, you use the term a promise beyond ableness. Right. And that's something, you know, you're used to saying that. This is the first time I've heard that. So we right. I made it up. It never existed before. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Like, you know, and I, I was, you know, while you were talking, I was kind of chewing on that. I'm like promise beyond ableness, like ableness means what you can do. So you're making a promise beyond your skill set. You're, you're putting something in the ethos that is a possibility. Right. And you maybe not know how to do it, but you're, this is what you want to do and you'll figure out how to do it later. Uh, well, you a little more than that. You promised to learn how to do it in the company helps you learn how. So we have people who go back and get degrees. We have resources inside the company who because it's it's not about just doing more. It's about learning because it also includes changing yourself as a person, growing you, saying, I want to be more able in the world. I want to have more courage. I want to take on things. I want to know how to read markets. So you have to take on something that is beyond not just your ability to do, but your ability to be, to be courageous. And, uh, and everyone has a plan with a promise beyond able to everyone in the company. And so everyone is working with what used to be supervisors, which are now resources to people growing and contributing. So it's a really big deal. Many it of these is a big things, deal. They, and many take a couple of years to succeed at. And you have to learn how to help people do an evaluation that's non-judgmental of themselves, but also demanding because you don't get feedback from anyone outside that goes away. That's what I call gaslighting. You tell somebody how to think about themselves that doesn't fit their opinion, but you don't care. It's your opinion. So all of that goes away and people become self-determining. And I've written, as you comment, thankfully, very nice, uh, six books. And one of those, the foreword is written by the guy who, who founded Seventh Generation. Every one of my forwards are written by CEOs our executives who made this happen on how to do it and so forth. So um, it is a big deal, but it makes a difference in the, it, Jeffrey Hollander, founder of Seventh Generation said, this not only changed his company, it changed his life. Sure, because you can apply these same, you can apply these same techniques to your family, to really any system. Yes, you could exactly. apply it to a classroom. You could apply it to, you know, really any industry, um, even in some respects to our military. You know, there's there's a lot of places. Sure. I think of like joint command would be great. You know, this would be a great place for joint command, maybe not in the ranks of the enlisted when you're, you know, deploying. But there is a value to this and one size does not fit all. And that's the thing about taking, you know, when we look at most of the way our corporate structures are, you know, that J. Edwards Deming talked about, you know, in his great work and continual improvement. And you look at our militaristic hierarchy and you lay it upon a family structure, an education structure or a business structure 
that's an all things for all people. It's not going to work. And the, the thing about yeah. these structures is people are not machines. And right. when you take a person and you treat it like a machine. You know, just recently I was interviewing uh, uh, Devin Durant in his book about values and telling him about somebody asked me to make copies for them one time. And I said, I'm happy to do it for you if you can tell me my name. Oh, very good. <laughs> very you know, good. And I almost got fired over that because it was being cheeky to the executives. And it's like, oh. wait a minute. We are people first and foremost. Right. I and love it. That's a great story. Yeah, working together. So we have to find out how do we bring out the best in people. And you discuss these strategies about how some traditional things like goal setting can undermine the intelligence of both you and your employees right. and actually Absolutely. shut that life down. Yeah. So uh, I want to build on something you said about it applies everywhere. My fifth book is called The Regenerative Life. And it is about seven roles in society that if they're done with the way you and I are talking and about uh, what I'm speaking to about books, it would change society. They start with parent. So the whole the book has a thing about what's the essence of parenting. Then there's the educators, those who are in a classroom and whether it's a business or a university or wherever, designers, people who design materials and events. Uh, earth tenders, I call them, people who, who seek to educate us about our impact on earth. Then on the other side, I've got this on a graphic, so I'm waving around the graphic. On the left-hand side are citizen. All this applies to being a citizen. An economic shaper, how we spend our money, and you'll love this one, a media content creator. They shape the world and can use all of this, entrepreneurs and spirit resources. All of those nine roles, I lay out how this affects them. And I created, and your, your uh, uh, listeners are welcome to take advantage of this. It's free, which is to go do the, it was a, uh, a an action learning project. I had 180 people involved who I tell 60 of their stories in this book, who applied this to their life and their work, told me their stories, and I wrote them up in the book. I give an opportunity. All I ask people to do is buy some books. Of, I think can't remember what it's two, three, five books because you need it to do it. But then you can go through the process they did in one of these nine arenas and apply. How would this fit with me as a teacher? How would it fit as a citizen? So carolsanford.com, you can go look at. And I think it's under offerings and says, regenerative life project or something you can email me if you can't find it yeah interesting you know i i think that um the concept of of what you're talking about is so it's so necessary you know we've just gone through such a huge change in the world and we're coming yeah. out you know and it's more necessary than ever you know and i was looking at the the um you know i was looking at the covers of your books you know and yeah. i see that you use sacred geometry on the cover of your books that's not by accident no it's i'm a pythagorean they come from pythagoras and that was the original source of all these graphics and now they're in a variety of places some i think they're abused but others they're taking to lift up 
uh, I call them frameworks. So they help us know how to think mm -hmm. uh, in a more systemic and whole way and get off the middle uh, mental models that make us mechanical. So no, it, I walked the uh, Shark Cathedral, uh, which I have on book three, uh, I think it's right, the um, Regenerative Business. And when I walked the cathedral, the maze, the labyrinth that's there, yeah. it had a transformative effect on my understanding. I had to get off my lazy ass yeah. and get to making my life whatever it needed to contribute. And it led me to um, doing the kind of work I do now and writing about it so that other people can find it. And I finally put it on my third book directly, The Shark Cathedral. Interesting. You know, I I, I always think there's little Easter eggs. There's all these little hidden gems if you yeah. pay attention. Um, yeah. And that that's what makes it fun. And that's what makes, you know, people like you so interesting to yeah. talk up to because I can find a thousand people to tell me the same leadership facts over and over to the point where I can almost finish their sentences for them. <laughs> and so it's it's really fun to talk to somebody who has coached and directed and written about leadership at the highest level of these big companies um, and educating them and teaching them how to develop their people, because that's one of the big things that I yeah. see coming out of COVID. You know, pre-COVID, we were creating machinery. We were turning people into machinery. We were wiring them into technology. And, yeah. um, you know, I think technology was a necessary evolution because we were, you know, exhausting the resources of the planet, like even just as simple as movies. You know, we used to think of how much money, energy, time, and Earth's uh, resources used to make a videotape or to make a DVD for someone for right. one time use. So I think, you know, quantum economics teaches us that the, the digital age was a natural evolution right. as we move through. And when I look at coming out of COVID and the, you know, the complete and utter shutdown of most of the planet and then a reopening, we are not to reopen this planet using the same things that caused a shutdown in the first place. So right. I'm curious to ask you, what do you think in leadership are the lessons that we should have learned from COVID with respect to, especially respect to big companies and to uh, corporate America? All right, so you're not gonna like my answer. I'm gonna love your answer because it's honest. no. I don't. I don't have an answer. I don't. I'm not a person who analyzes events. I'm okay. a person who educates thinking, and so that's the kind of question I could give some you a framework to think about, and I can help you develop okay. your capacity to think about it. So uh, the the major thing is to ask. How do you, so I want to take your quantum mechanics uh, or quantum cosmology and tie it to how uh, I would help people think about that. Right. If you uh, take Einstein's admonition or caveat of don't use the same mind that got us into this problem, create the new one, right? He said that 27 different ways. I'm old enough, I got to study with some of his students at Berkeley. And one of the things they told us was their two different ways when I, when Einstein used to tell people what he meant by that in a classroom, he'd say, well, there are two different ways. There's the Newtonian way 
and the quantum way. The, it's the answer question. So the Newtonian way is you think about a pool table and you think you're the uh, cue stick and it's your job to figure out who needs to change and what pocket you need to put them in. So if we come out of the uh, pandemic and all the, the war and everything is going with it, we can have an answer that would be about, I'm in charge, I get a new vision, I get a bunch of people together, we figure out who the bad guys are, or the well-intended we can move, and we find the, the pocket and we move them there. Now we've got one kind of answer. Einstein said the second one is the quantum, which means anything you think you're going to move and know where it's going to go, you're wrong. It's a <laughs> matrix. It's a, quantum, a world where even me having a thought changes a bunch of other things. So I think I'm a cue stick and I'm going to be the cue ball. In a quantum understanding, nothing goes where you send it. Right. And you can't predict where it's going to go. And many, many things will move at the same time. So now, if you answer, take your question and you say, how am I going to answer it? Now you say, I, my only job is to create a healthy matrix. That's what Einstein said. The matrix in which all of that movement takes place is to be made healthy so it can choose. There, we can't decide. So the reason I can't answer your question is it would be foolhardy to think I knew what we should learn. What I know is the quality of thinking needs more ableness. And so my world is about teaching people, see what paradigm you're in. Are you in a Newtonian or quantum model? And what's the effect of that? Where do you want to go? How do you want to grow? That's how I answer questions like that. So a little, a little different than most people probably. And that's what I was looking for. You know, that was, <laughs> was you know, if I wanted a, a direct answer in a, we should do X, Y, and Z. And I love your pool table analogy. I wouldn't have, have brought you on the show and asked for it because yeah. one of the things, the, the one thing that I know we need to do is that we all need to, not all, but most of us need to learn to think differently, to explore differently, and to to really shift some of these, you know, ingrained belief systems that we've worked on that are really archaic. They don't serve the purpose that they were originally designed to do. And or maybe ever served the purpose. Or ever served. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So um my work is about building capacity to mm -hmm to uh, be able to make sense out of the world by learning. I also studied with Thomas Kuhn, who wrote the structure of the scientific revolution, which was about paradigm shifting. And one of the things Kuhn said to the class, and I was a nobody in it, uh, is that his work had radically changed for him. He went from science to philosophy of science because he felt like that we couldn't see how we were making science. And we had to learn to understand how we were making it up and how we often were literally making it up in our head yep. and the testing to prove it. And someone in the class asked him, well, how do we do that? And he said, I figured out the question. It's your job to figure out the answer. Now, the effect that had on me as a 21-year-old senior uh, at taking an auditing, his, he was a lecturer, a visiting lecturer, was I spent the rest of my life figuring out how do you know what paradigm you're in? Mm -hmm. And 
I have written books with that in it, how you can assess where you are as a group of people, not judge others. That's the wrong paradigm. But we build a capability of an organization to know whether it's in an extract value where we get everything we can from everybody and get more than we put in or an arrest disorder paradigm where we try and slow down the mess we're making. And, you know, we try and do sustainability circular or something that would slow it down. Or are we in a do good paradigm where we say, well, arrest disorder enough, I should be able to do good. Well, the problem is the question is whose definition of good, right? Because we impose it. So what I work with people is to be able to see when they're stuck in one of those three paradigms and didn't know it. And good, well-intended companies get sure. get stuck in arrest disorder. I help them learn how, what does it mean to be regenerative, to be able to think in a way that's about evolving the capacity of any matrix, any forest, any home, any uh, parent, neighborhood. How do you help it be healthy? so that everyone in it can go their own way and build capability uh, to be able to make the difference they wanna make. Oh, I love that. I mean, you give me so much to think about, you know, because you're really, you're giving decision makers a whole different set of tools. Yeah, and I call them instruments. So let me tell you why. Because tools are hammers that you do the same thing with it over and over. Gotcha. An instrument is something that has multiple uses and it can grow over time. And you can find other uses. Uh, and I work with, I, I don't only work with what you call, you're calling leaders because I believe leadership is process. But we always have a core team who is leading this, who's made up of a set of fiduciaries, but also people who run the operation every day off the floor. They, I worked in Kingsford Charcoal where the uh, illiteracy rate was about uh, 40%, including all the kids. And they were in the backwoods of Arkansas and Alabama. And they all, even though they couldn't read, they got what I was talking about. And they transformed the company. They created a program for literacy by agreeing to publish a newsletter for the town and all the kids of the employees got involved, the wives and husbands. And this process of engaging everyone, not a tie, I do nothing top down. I don't teach leaders how to do something to their people. I teach them how to redesign an entire company. So there's no such thing. And we don't fire supervisors. We give them a better, exciting role. And we don't, in South Africa, we were mandated by the constitution as Mandela was coming into office to be able to have the top, the executives of Colgate Palmolive where we were match in numbers and percentage, the ethnic and racial population. So you won't have any trouble understanding. The country was 95% black Africans and 5% white. Guess what the top of Colgate looked like? 95% white Africans. I'm surprised it's as low as 95%. Yeah. Well, I and I, I could I'm rounding the number. No, so. I know. I was just making a you know a comment <laughs> right. going like you know, it's it's the white wave. 
Right. But we, in six months, met the constitutional mandate of it matching by developing people company-wide and being able to have them bring, even though they had not been to school in for decades, one quite a century, but they hadn't been allowed to be in school. Uh, Stadios, who was the GM said, but that doesn't mean they're not super smart. Think what they've had to manage through with apartheid, with, with warring. And we were able to move, uh, we did these promises beyond ableness. Everyone in the company made a contribution into the township in terms of economic development. And Mandela created an award for Colgate. He called the Constitution Award and did a big public ceremony. So you all, and that that whole story is in book one and book four that I wrote. You can uh, look up No More Feedback or The Responsible Business. So it is not just a top-down or an educate people how to lead their people. No, you you stir up the mix and the work is no longer directed from the top, it's directed from a core team, which works and has rotation, you know, changeovers, and it's like a whole different way to run a company. It is, it is, and it's like a whole company involvement and it becomes an organization or an organism like you know yeah. that there's there's you know each one is codependent on each other there's an, a mutual interdependency maybe is a better way to look at it and that if everyone's contributing to the greater good of the consumer how is it possible for the company not to excel uh, <clears throat> my first book was called the responsible business and it was about how to have five stakeholders all working as a system. The first one was consumer, customer, um, which was sometimes a distributor. The second one was co-creators, which are employees, suppliers, contractors. The third one was Earth, as a, that's the name. It was like you asking, I'll copy if you'll tell me my name. I say to people, don't say the Earth or the planet. Earth has a name. Earth, the name of Earth is Earth. So that, and then the other stakeholder was communities or society, and finally investors. And I, I've got a pen down. I'm drawing around stars. I talk, and so it isn't only connecting people to the consumer. Although I say that's at the top because you're not business if you aren't creating value for someone's life. But you have to work with all of these as a system and connect everyone to every other one. So many people around the world are now using the system that I wrote in my first book, uh, including we did that uh, deeply in South Africa, but also in Zimbabwe and Kenya, because we end up working with Colgate and all of Southeast um, Africa. So it's a very systemic process, not only a people connected outside, but people connected to the effects they have on that whole system. You're oh, muted. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just, there was some noise um, outside my office door. Um, I love what you say about that, that, you know, that organism, that, that kind of living, breathing entity yeah. that we all become part of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Learning, let me, let me give you another secret. You like the secrets behind things. Um, the uh, 
basis of all my work has four primary sources, all of them in some ways, which are the same. One is I had an, uh, a part Mohawk grandfather who was grew up on a native reservation in Eastern Oklahoma until he was uh, 10 or 11 years old. He was very influential in my life and got me very connected to indigenous philosophy, he called it. Um, so much of what I do comes from that thread. What are the, the beliefs, the premises that they live on? The second one are lineage teachers. Um, I had a kind of a rough upbringing, which I write a little bit about in my books. But the good news is it led me to trying to find through various spiritual uh, teachers, lineage teachers, uh, Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, particularly Hinduism, Socrates and Pythagoras, which had a, uh, a metaphysical component to what sure. they did. And, uh, and then quantum mechanics, because when I was working on my dissertation, I went and did a lot of studying with um, uh, folks who were involved in the emerging understanding of the quantum cosmology. And then finally, living systems, which I got a lot from my grandfather, being in the forest, in the farm, in the garden, you know, in the field, I mean, all of those things, uh, which were the natural part of living system. So the threads that run through all four of those are the underpinnings of my book. Gotcha. You can see them, uh, and I call them out once in a while about here's where I source this idea. None of the ideas are original. Uh, maybe the way I help redesign work systems so they can use them, I get a little credit for. But mostly I'm drawing on the wisdom of the ages um, and being able to translate into modern times in how you run a company that can serve all the stakeholders. So that's kind of sourcing and that's why you see the coverage you see. Uh, and the way I teach. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I have I have so many questions, um, you know, <laughs> and we're, we're running out of time, but I want to talk a little bit about agency, if we could. And, yeah. you know, in agency, you know, we've got kind of powerful others on one side, we've got self-reflection on the other. Where do we fall in our, like, where where should we try to fall within that source of agency? Well, <clears throat> I need to give a little context for this answer. I say in my second book and partly fourth one too, that there are three legs to the stool of which agency is one. Mm -hmm. uh, the other two are locus control. Where, where do I think the control is? Am I responsible for my own actions, my own learning and development, or do I blame others when somebody didn't take care of me? Considering means who do I consider? Only myself, or am I able to consider uh, others and the impact? And then the third leg is agency. And in agency, it is I am either submitting to others' agency, or I am choosing to serve a greater whole agency, like a planet or a family. And my agency is to determine what, which of those things I get uh, hooked by or attached to. If I don't have uh, and you can see this in the world today, where we have people who uh, favor authoritarian, tyrannical leaders. Right. And they probably grew up and lived in a culture and a family environment or even a national environment where 
they were taught they didn't know anything. They right. couldn't know. They had to trust others' uh, opinion and advice. So right, the authoritarian to, rule. Right, and they want to even if you don't go all the way to authoritarian, you go just to I trust others' opinions more than I do my own. Yep. You're you're in trouble, and our nation's in trouble because we consult the lunatics when they advise us on how to vote because we're wandering around without any agency. Right. So to me, you. Uh, want to work on developing your own sense of agency and you it has to come from somewhere mm -hmm. so i say have it come from uh something greater than us and for some people that's religion but for the kind of work i'm doing with people i say have it come from the greater whole a planet being healthy yep. a community being healthy your family it finds something you can serve and then your agency will be high it'll be in, uh, inexhaustible because you know you're making a difference. You will be under stress, worn out, uh, unsure, uh, and afraid in the world if your agency comes from another person who wants to benefit from you failing. Right, right. I love that. I love that. So if you guys like what you hear today, we were talking about the first principles of human capacities, and we're here today, we are talking with Carol Sanford, and you guys can go to carolsanford.com. Uh, Carol, I want to thank you for being my guest today. It just flew by. I have a million questions. I will probably, you know, have you come back sooner rather than later. Happy you are to do that current book that is offered is indirect work and if you guys like what you hear today go ahead and check that out if it's good enough for harvard stanford mit and google it might just be good enough for you we'll be back again next week with another great episode thank you thank you for listening on behalf of Sandra Beck, we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want. Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach Talk Radio.